right, let's go into our teaching for this morning. We're continuing in our Advent series, looking at Luke chapter 2. And so if you want to open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 2, I'll be reading our passage from there this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right, because we will have the words on the screens next to me so that you'll be able to follow along there. So I'll give you just a moment to turn to Luke chapter 2 if you're wanting to read along in your own Bible. Luke chapter 2, and starting in verse 8, it says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at, the, uh, at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there is a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem. And see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So around this time every year, we start to have Christmas lights going up and decorations popping up in the yard and Christmas sales going on and the Christmas music comes on. And along with all of the normal holiday decor and traditions that start coming about, there's another tradition that starts coming about, which is that there's people who feel that is necessary to remind everyone that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Billboards start going up with it. Hey, he's the reason for the season. Don't forget it. Now, here's the thing. Cliche as that is, it's true. It's true. And it actually is a good reminder for us, because in the midst of all of our holiday parties and the, the excitement of the, of the decorations and going see the lights and eating uh, good food together and celebrating the season and the gift giving and the gift receiving, it is important. It's a good reminder, and it is a true reminder that, yes, Jesus is the reason. He is the reason. He is what this, uh, this time of year should be all about. However... Being that that is true, and we acknowledge that it's true, the question is, well, then how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? What does it mean? In other words, what difference does it make that Jesus is the reason for the season versus it just being any old normal, like, national holiday with natural, uh, uh, national traditions? What difference does it make, and what does it mean for us, and how do we respond to it since he is at the center, and he is what it's all about? In other words, the question we're asking is, how do we respond to Jesus at Christmas? To figure this out, we've been looking at this section from Luke chapter 2. Over the last couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at it today, and we'll be looking at it all uh, through Christmas, um, because here we get a, a, a teaching on how we ought to respond to Jesus. Because if we approach this chapter willing to put ourselves in the shepherd's shoes, to place ourselves in their place, and to hear the angel's message as if it is being declared to us, then we can learn something about what it means to understand Christmas and responding to Christmas. Because we are, just, we are a lot like the shepherds in that we hear the message of Jesus. We hear the good news or the message of Christmas declared to us from a messenger 
In this case, their messenger was an angel. For us, it's, it's a friend, it's a family member, it's a youth pastor or whoever else. But we hear the message declared through a messenger, and then we are challenged with responding to it. So that's what we're doing in this series and continuing to do as we, uh, as we continue in it today. Today we're looking at the phrase, great joy, in the angel's declaration. What is joy? What does that mean? Um, what is joy? What is it that stops joy? Or what is it that robs us of joy? And then how do we get it? Those are the questions that we're going to be thinking through today as we look at this passage. So the angel comes and declares to them, you know, fear not or don't be afraid because they are terrified. You might remember we looked at that in the first uh, week of the series. The angels come up, the glory of God shines around them and it says that the shepherds are terrified. That's because seeing a real angel and the glory of God with that angel is not the same as the way the angels are usually depicted in our uh, Christmas decorations and, and, and others. Uh, so it was terrifying for them. So the angel says to them, don't be afraid. And we looked at that before. He says, for I, I'm coming to tell you good news of great joy. So it is good news, but with it, he also tells us the kind of uh, reaction or response. He tells us what will happen to those who hear and receive this good news, what type of good news it is. He says, this is good news I'm bringing to you of great joy. That's why you don't need to be afraid. You see, and we looked at this last week, the good news that the angel came to declare to them. What was the good news? Well, it was not just that a baby was born, right? We like to make a big deal out of babies being born. This wasn't just an even bigger making a deal out of a baby being born, but it was specifically who this child is and would be to them. The angel says, I'm declaring to you good news about the birth of not just anyone, and he doesn't say, I'm declaring to you the birth of the best teacher you've ever heard. Or, I, you know, I'm declaring to you the birth of the best moral philosopher that has ever existed. Like, okay, that'd be, that'd be cool, exciting news. But good news of great joy with angels declaring it? No, I'm declaring to you good news of the birth of a Savior. Now, you see, that's fundamentally different than I'm declaring to you the good news of the birth of a teacher or the birth of, the, of a moral philosopher, or, the, or even the birth of a new religious leader, is different from all those other things. Why? Consider the implications between a teacher or philosopher versus a savior, or messiah, a lord. He actually he says all three of those, savior, messiah, lord. Consider the implications. If, he, if the angel would have said, I'm declaring to you the good news of a new teacher, well, what does a teacher do? A teacher or a moral philosopher comes and explains ideas and concepts. Uh, it, it explains structures of thinking or ways of living. And it explains those things to you, those concepts, those ways of living. It teaches you not just what they mean, but here is how you can start to follow it. Here is you, how you can start to walk out these things that I've taught you in your own life. In other, words, in other words, they equip you to then do for yourself something that the teacher cannot do, right? Maybe some of you guys are like me, and you struggled with math in high school. 
Now, I did not struggle with math for lack of good teachers. In fact, I had some excellent teachers. But you know what? They couldn't do it for me. No matter how hard they taught and equipped and explained the concepts, they couldn't do it for me. You know, even my parents who tried to make me do homework and so on, they couldn't do it for me. Because what a te- that's what a teacher does, is they equip you to then do for yourself something that they cannot do for you. And if we were to make a Christmas story for every other world religion, that would have been the announcement. Here's the birth of a new teacher for you, the Buddha. Uh, or here's the birth of a new prophet for you, uh, Muhammad. Right? Here is the birth of a new teacher, a new philosopher, a new leader. In other words, the announcement of someone who's going to come and, and tell you what the way to God is and how to get there so that then you can do it for yourself. But not the Christian message, not Christian Christmas. The angel declares a savior. Like I said, work out the implications. That implies something very different. He is not a teacher here to show you the way so that you can do it for yourself. He's not a mountain guide showing you here's the path to God at the top of the mountain and how you can climb up there. He says a savior. What does that imply? He is here to rescue you, to deliver you from a situation that you cannot rescue yourself from that you cannot deliver yourself from, a rescue which is so serious and desperate that you need salvation, saving from it. That's the good news that the angel declares to the shepherds and to us at Christmas. Therefore, in order to understand the good news, and in order to really understand Christmas, and the necessity of God becoming man in Bethlehem, in the manger, right? the first Christmas, in order to understand all these things truly and deeply and not just to have your heart warmed by the sweetness of the nativity scene, is that you need to recognize that you need a rescue, that you need a rescue, that you need deliverance. Jesus's birth is God's first step in delivering you. So what's the reaction of people who are rescued? Maybe you've seen Uh, maybe you've seen video and images of people being rescued before, whether it is hostages being held by a terrorist group and and rescued by by some soldiers or commandos, whoever else. Maybe it is people who are trapped in their homes during a natural disaster like a a hurricane or uh, or a tsunami or whatever else. And, you know, we've all seen pictures of the Cajun Navy, those saviors who go in and rescue the people from their homes. Last week, I mentioned uh, this incredible documentary called The Rescue, which was about the, the rescuing of that, um, this uh, soccer team, this Thai soccer team of young boys who went exploring in a cave. This flash flood happened, making them trapped in the cave, and then divers went in and rescued them. You know, where you see these different um, depictions of people being rescued from life-threatening situations, what is their response? At first, they're afraid. They're still terrified. But then once they are saved and they are brought into safety, it's tears of joy. Whenever their life is is threatened, they're in a situation in which they realize that they have no power to get themselves out of. It is absolutely desperate. Whenever they are taken out of it by the power of someone else, they are rescued by a good Savior. They shed tears of joy. 
Maybe some of you have been in a situation like that. I don't know. But for a lot of us, we haven't been rescued from a life or death situation. But we've been delivered from just bad situations. Maybe you've been in a place before that, you know, you were in a pinch, like we say. And then someone came in and helped you get out of it. They helped you, re- they, they rescued you out of a situation where you were, you're really afraid of the consequences. They helped you to realize it's going to be okay. I got you. What was your response to that? Relief. You know, and I think in that is a kind of joy. In that relief, you're relieved because you're now free from the fear of the consequences that you had before. And freedom from fear is joy. What is response to being rescued? It is tears of joy. The Christmas message is, a, is the announcement of rescue, of deliverance, of salvation to the world. And so with that comes the announcement of a great joy, which is available to us whenever we recognize that we need that rescue and that we are given that rescue in Jesus Christ. So our first point is that Christmas gives us great joy in the arrival of our Savior. It gives us great joy in the arrival of our Savior. And so, in a sense, Christmas is a joy-achieving project. It's what it's all about. It is about our salvation so that we might experience this great joy. We can, uh, we're not going to do so this morning, but, but you can go and search and see later. There are instances all over Scripture of how uh, fellowship with God equals life-satisfying joy, or of how in God's salvation there is joy. These things are always connected. In God uh, saving us from our sin and bringing him to uh, himself, what he is doing is bringing us into our greatest joy that we could possibly experience. Now, how is he going to do that? He first starts by accomplishing it at Christmas. Christmas is a joy-achieving project by God. He's saving us from everything that robs us of joy and is giving us our joy and saving us from our sin and reconciling us to himself. This is why we sing at Christmas, joy to the world. That's what it's all about. That's why it is absolutely appropriate for us to celebrate the Christmas season with all the joy that we can muster up, not because we're eating cookies. I get really joyful of cookies, okay? Uh, and not because we got gifts. Those are fun. But because of what Jesus has done for us, he has rescued us out of from death itself and brought us to himself. And now we know God. And in knowing God, there is joy that surpasses anything this world can comprehend. It's a joy-achieving project, saving us from all that would rob us of our joy. But what is it that robs us of our joy? What is it that he is rescuing us from? Well, like I said, it's death, but it is specifically what robs us of our joy is sin. Sin robs of joy. We are often enticed into sin through offers of pleasure, right? Sin because it'll make you feel good. Whether that is an an actual pleasure, pleasure of the body, pleasure of the stomach, you know, sin because it'll feel good. That's often the case, but, but it's also sometimes the case, sin because it'll make you feel good in, internally. You know, it, it'll, it'll boost your self-image. 
It'll make you feel better about yourself. It will assuage maybe some of those anxieties that you are experiencing. It's going to be good. Sin is always an offer of counterfeit joy, which then ends up robbing us of true joy. Sin is the, is the anti-Christmas project. If Christmas is all about achieving our joy, sin is about taking it away. Let me just, there's so many different ways we can talk about how sin takes away our joy, but I'm just going to give you three. The first one is that sin to, takes away our joy through the suffering of the world. Sin takes away our joy through the suffering of the world. The reason that we have suffering in our world, in all of its different types of manifestations, we experience suffering through, as I mentioned before, natural disasters and, and calamities. We experience suffering through, uh, through disease and through ailments of the body that, uh, that, that afflict our bodies and that afflict our families and communities. But we also experience sin through the intentional acts of people, through malice and so on. In all of these different ways that sin manifests in the world bring about suffering. All suffering in this world is the product of sin and not a part of God's original design. He created a world that was free from suffering, that was free from natural disasters and disease, that was free from, uh, from the pain of being sinned against and from the pain that is involved whenever we partake in sin ourselves. All different types of suffering that we experience are the product of sin. Like that Hope International video we watched just a moment ago, and they were describing it as all these broken relationships, broken relationship with the self. You know, what that's talking about is the kind of uh, sufferings that we can experience just within our own being and self with our, whenever we suffer against depression, anxiety, fear, worry, uh, anxiety over self-image and how we will be perceived, and so on. Broken relationships with the self, with God, with others, right? And then even with the world around us. Sin breaks all these relationships and causes suffering, and that suffering takes away or threatens joy. But Christmas offers us a joy that cannot be taken away, even by suffering. This is why it's important to understand the difference between joy and happiness. There are a lot of things in this world that can make you really happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think God gave us all of these good gifts because he loves us and he wants us to be happy. But he gives us something that is even deeper and that is even better and more stable than happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Emotions come and go. Have you ever watched someone laugh at, 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 at a joke or something funny that happens? Or have you ever watched someone smile whenever a friend or a loved one walks into the room and they are excited to see them? And you, you keep watching their face. I spend a lot of time in coffee shops and I do a little bit of people observing. So uh, you, you watch their face and what happens? They smile and then, and then it slowly fades away. Right? It doesn't mean they're depressed now, but it just, you know, that, that initial joy, or, or I'm sorry, that initial happiness, that emotion slowly fades away. Happiness is an emotion, and emotions come and go. They come and go. They're not stable, and they are frequently, if not always, based upon external circumstances. Happiness is based upon external circumstances. I am happy whenever I am well-fed. 
That's, that's very true in our house. I'm happy whenever I am well-fed, or I am happy whenever uh, my bank account is full, or I'm happy whenever my kids are listening to me, or I'm happy whenever this and that and so on. But whenever I'm empty, whenever uh, we we're hit with something financially we didn't expect, right? whenever my kids aren't listening, or something isn't going well that I desire, then my happiness is threatened, it's taken away. Now I'm faced with struggle, I'm faced with suffering. But though happiness can be taken away, that emotion can be taken away by suffering, difficulty, joy cannot. Why? What's the difference? First of all, joy is something deeper than an emotion. And remember what our joy is based on. Happiness has an external source. It's based upon our circumstances. It's based upon how my kids are acting. Or it's based upon this or that. But joy comes from something else. Joy is something that springs from us internally because it is a response to what God has done for us. It is a response to our knowing God and being in relationship with him. And so whenever we we set our mind to those things, then it springs from something inside of us, right? Inside of us, meaning that it cannot be changed by external circumstances that produces a state of joy. It's different. It's deeper than happiness. It's more abiding. It's not emotion that that comes and goes. It's something that once we set our mind on the gospel, it it is produced from within us despite what is going on outside of us. So sin threatens our joy with the suffering of the world, which is why Christmas offers us a joy that cannot be taken away. The second way that, that sin tries to rob us of joy is whenever we struggle with sin in our flesh. I'm speaking specifically to Christians. You know, and many of us, if you've been walking with Christ for a while, we can all become a little exasperated. We can all become a little weary in the fight against our sin, in the wrestling with our flesh. We desire to serve God and to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to follow him and and obey him and pursue his righteousness. And yet we still struggle with our fallen flesh. Though we have been saved from the power and consequences of sin, we still wrestle with the presence of sin in our lives and even in ourselves. And it's easy for us, every single one of us, can from time to time start to grow weary in that fight. And it causes us to mourn. But we got to remember what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn. We can talk about all the different types of mourning that Jesus is addressing. When he said, blessed are those who mourn. But let me tell you that one of them is absolutely those who mourn over their own fleshly state. And how they still continue to wrestle with sin. And how they still continue from time to time to be deceived by temptation. They continue from time to time to be deceived by sin's offer of a counterfeit joy. And we moan, uh, we, we, we mourn that fact. But here's the amazingness of the gospel. I think I just made up a word. 
Let's go with it. The amazingness of the gospel, how incredible the gospel is. It says, for those who are weary with struggling in their sin and fighting their flesh, they are still blessed. You know what that is? Joy for them. Even their mourning is blessedness. Even their mourning is joy for them. Why? Because their salvation rests not in their performance against their own sin, but because of what Christ has accomplished for them. So blessed are they who mourn even over their own weakness. Once again, sin threatens to rob us of our joy and our sufferings, and even it wants to try to rob us of our joy by wearing us down in the fight inside of ourselves. But Christmas offers us a joy that cannot be taken away, even in that internal fight. Let me give you the last one, the last of these three points. Sin threatens to take away our joy, finally, whenever we indulge in it. So, you know, I've been speaking up until this point about things that don't involve our actively participating in sin, just whenever we experience the suffering of the world or whenever we are wrestling against it inside of ourselves. But what happens whenever we give in? What happens whenever we participate in sin? Whenever we take the step into sin or accept the offer the temptation puts before us? Whenever sin is indulged in, it will take away our joy. Whenever we start to believe that deceiving that it, that it, uh, of the counterfeit happiness that it is offering us, it will take away our joy, and here's why. I explained last week that one of the ways that we can boil down what makes sin or, or, or what is sin fundamentally, simply what is it? Sin is pride. Sin is pride. It's whenever we put ourselves at the center before others. It's whenever we put ourselves at the center before God. Whenever we hear God's commandments and we read his word and we say, not your word, but mine. Right? Not your way, but mine and what I want for myself. That's pride. Sin most fundamentally. And before we even do any other sin in our life, before we sin with our hands, we sin in our heart with the sin of pride, placing ourselves at the center. Now, what's the result of that? Whenever we indulge in that pride and we allow for it to rule in our body or in our mind, in our heart. Think of it this way. Pride is essentially breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That means no other authorities, no other words, no other allegiances before me. I am supreme over them all. That's what the first commandment means. Pride is saying no to that. I will be supreme in my desires over yours. That's the first commandment. Is it any coincidence then that the last commandment, kind of creating these bookends for all of the ones that are in between, is the, the commandment against coveting. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions and, and so on. I don't think it's any coincidence at all. And all of those commandments that are in between the two are expressions and manifestations of what happens when we break the first commandment and then it results in us breaking the last one. Because here's what happens whenever we give into pride and we allow it to rule. Do you know what it bubbles up from within us? Envy. Envy. Sin, pride, produces envy, which is a kind of mourning. 
That's what covetousness, envy, same thing. It's a kind of mourning. Thomas Aquinas defined envy as this, and I really like it. He said, envy is sorrow at another's good. That's the same thing as covetousness. You see, covetousness isn't just looking at what someone else has and saying, oh, I wish I had one of those. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Seeing that, you know, someone's got a cool shirt, and you're like, ah, I want that shirt. Sin and covetousness, envy is this instead, seeing what someone else has and wishing that the situation was reversed, that you were the one that had it and they were the one that didn't. Envy is not just looking at where someone else is in their career and saying, I'd like to be there one day. You know, I like where they are. I like, I like the kind of house they have, and I like the, the job title they have, and I want that one day. That's just aspiration. There's nothing wrong with that. Envy is whenever you have, it, it produces sorrow within you. It produces this kind of mourning inside of you that they have it and you don't. Pride will directly lead you into envy because pride is placing yourselves at the center. It's making yourself number one. And if you allow pride to rule inside of you, what is that going to mean? It's going to mean that you're going to want to see others below you. And so whenever you see the good things that others have, it's not just enough that you would have it too, but that you would have it and they don't. It is that you would be the one in their place and, the one, and, and they the ones in the lower place. This is envy. This is covetousness. It is fundamentally, envy, a breaking of the second commandment to love your neighbor. Uh, the, the, the second of the great commandments. Whenever Jesus says what the two great commandments are, they're to love, the God, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, he says, to love your neighbor. Those two sum up all of the law. What envy, covetousness, the ninth commandment, is fundamentally a breaking of that command to love our neighbor. Because if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we desire for them everything that we would want to have. We would desire all the good for them that we would want for ourselves. But envy, that covetousness, like I said, whenever it desires that those who have and you who have not would be switched, it's a breaking of that. It's an unwillingness to love them. We are told in the New Testament by Paul that loving others means that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Envy, since it is anti-love, changes that with to at. And it mixes it all up so that we weep at those who rejoice and rejoice at those who weep. But Christmas joy... And what Christmas is all about is rescuing us from that enemy of envy. Our second point, then, is Christmas gives us rescue from the enemy of joy, which is envy. That sin which causes us to mourn at the good of others. How? How does Christmas rescue us from these different things that rob us of joy? And how does it rescue us from sin? Well, because Christmas is only the beginning of the story. It's only the beginning of the story of the Savior, Rescuer, Deliverer, Lord, who is coming in, making his invasion assault on the enemy. To understand how Christmas gives us this joy, you have to know the full story beyond it. Because Jesus was born, not just so that he might be born, but so that he might die in defeating sin. Jesus would defeat sin through his own death on the cross, overcoming the death that we deserve. 
like I said before, or, or I've said previously in other weeks, in order to rescue us from our sin and take our place on the cross, God had to become breakable. God had to become vulnerable. The indestructible had to be made something that could be destructed for him to take the consequences for our sin on himself. So the whole point of Christmas, of God becoming man, in specifically the form of a baby, is showing to us God being made vulnerable, God being made breakable, so that he might take the punishment for our sin upon himself. By, so that in taking it upon himself, in his death on the cross, and then his burial in the tomb, he lays down in his tomb what should have been our death, so that we are now offered salvation. That means rescue from that consequence. And so whenever you recognize this, and you recognize it in Christmas, seeing that oh, this birth of this baby boy, it's not the whole story, but knowing what is coming after, why he was born, why he is going to live, why he is going to live perfectly so that he might die and save me. Well, then what Christmas does is it turns your mourning into joy. All different types of mourning. Remember, we mourn over the brokenness of the world and the tragedy that we see and the tragedy, tragedies that we experience. Christmas can turn even those mornings into joy. You know, whereas, whereas mourning and suffering is a type of desolation and emptying of our, ourselves, there is no uh, cavity co- created within us by suffering that the joy of Christmas cannot fill that the joy of the gospel cannot fill. Because what the New Testament tells us is this, is that even our present sufferings are creating or preparing for us a, a glory and a joy in that glory that cannot be comprehended right now. Because he is going to take even death itself and defeat it ultimately one day whenever he comes back. And so whenever he defeats death, all uh, sufferings that have been experienced in this life will be, uh, will be turned over and restored in him. Whenever we look forward to that, we experience a little bit of the joy in the hoping towards it today. He turns our mourning into joy even whenever we struggle against sin. Because whenever we struggle against sin and we become weary with our own flesh, we can take joy in the fact that though I'm weary struggling against my own flesh, it is not my fight against sin that saves me, but it is Jesus And so I can take joy in that. And he turns our envy into satisfaction and love. Because whenever we are saved and whenever we uh, are, are delivered from pride, then we no longer have to be number one. We no longer have to be at the center of the world and of the universe. We no longer, in order to support ourselves being number one, have to see others below us. And so we can take actual joy in the good that others experience and the blessings that they receive and the good that happens to them. Love essentially says, I'm happy that you exist and I want all the best for you. Envy is the opposite of that. So whenever our envy is turned into satisfaction because we re- we've received all we need from God, we can now really, truly love others. Whenever we say, I am happy, and I desire, and I want every good thing for you, even if they're the things that I'm not getting. This is the kind of joy 
that the world doesn't know, but that is offered to us at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your work in Christmas and how your coming at Christmas isn't the full story and that your coming at Christmas isn't the story of a teacher showing us the way that we might save ourselves, but that it is instead the story of a Savior who was born as a baby, grew up in perfect obedience so that he might die the death that we deserve. Father, help us to recognize our need for deliverance, our need for salvation, so that the, uh, so the wonder and, uh, and beauty and magnificence of the gospel might produce great joy in our hearts, a joy that turns even our mournings at the world into joy, a joy that, uh, that satisfies what envy tries to tries to fill so we might then love others and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep who are courageous enough to love with others at whatever cost it might uh, mean for us father we pray these things in the name of our messiah savior and lord jesus christ amen